Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022, as the year winds down. Um, there's some perhaps good news on the American foreign policy front, on the Ukraine front. Um, uh, Zelensky is in, uh, the Ukrainian leader is in Washington, D.C., talking to Joe Biden. Um, these are headlines in, in the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, um, and the Financial Times. Uh, according to the FT, Biden pledges his continued support um, this is uh, Zelensky's first trip out of the Ukraine since the war began. Um, not all the news is that encouraging. The New York Times also uh, reports that um, uh, Ukraine is readying itself for a second year of war. And it doesn't seem, at least according to the Times, that uh, Vladimir Putin is backing down. And he is vowing uh, no limits to Russians. Uh, war spending. So one wonders in terms of 2022, what kind of international world we have, what's happened this year inside and outside Ukraine to reshape our thinking. Um, my guest today on the show is uh, a man who's been on the show several times before, Charles Kupchan. Um, is a, a Georgetown University scholar, um, one of America's leading thinkers on foreign policy, the author, uh, his latest book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. He's just back from Israel. He uh, spends a lot of time in and outside the United States, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us today. Uh, Charles, when... Um, Scholars of international relations like yourself look back at 2022. Um, is really the only story going to be Ukraine? Good to be uh, back with you, Andrew. Uh, I think that that uh, 2022 is in many respects a, a pivotal year. Uh, and we just don't know in which direction the international system is going to tilt. Uh, on the one hand, we are back in a world of open great power rivalry. Uh, wh whether or not this war in Ukraine ends anytime soon, I think it's safe to say that Russia's relationship with Europe and the United States is going to be deeply troubled and conflictual for the foreseeable future. And given that uh, the Russians are in a strategic partnership with China, and China has its own rising ambition and reach. We do appear to be headed toward uh, the return of a two-block world with the democracies on one side, China and Russia on the other, and much of the rest of the world not taking sides. I think it's quite striking that most of Latin America the Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia is not really coming down hard on the Russians and, and condemning this invasion. So we really do seem to be headed into um, a much more unpredictable and uncertain world. On the one hand, this is a war that I think has consolidated the 
solidarity of the West, breathed new life into liberal democracy because there's a sense of emergency, a call to arms. On the other hand, we are still living through a moment in which democracy in the United States, in major European countries, is, uh, is still fragile. Uh, and so I think on both fronts, where will the international system head? And where are we headed in terms of the future of, of liberal democracy? 2022 was a pivotal year, and, and we don't yet know how things are going to unfold in the coming months and years. Yeah, I like the idea of, well, I'm not sure if I like the idea of it, but certainly I'm intrigued by the notion of 2022 being a pivotal year. We're just not quite sure how. What about the idea, uh, Charles, of 2022 being a year in which uh, a second-ranked power like Ukraine was able to stand up to Russia. Russia might not be a great economic or cultural power, but it is a great military power. Might that have significance? This isn't just Afghanistan or Vietnam all over again. Does it represent a new kind of paradigm? Well, there's no question that Ukraine has been able to rebuff the Russian invasion in ways that very few people, myself included, foresaw. And it is in part because of a fighting spirit. Ukrainians are defending their homeland, their families, their homes, uh, and they have shown a fighting spirit that uh, is really so far been sustained and, and growing over time. And then the United States has led an effort financial, economic, and in particular military support to Ukraine that has enabled them to outperform the Russian military. Uh, and that that's new, right? We haven't seen a, a, a middle power like, uh, like Ukraine so thoroughly uh, be able to, to best a, uh, a great power like Russia and the Russian military has proved to be far more incompetent than we expected. But this, this is not over yet. Um, I'm guessing this war is going to continue for quite some time. It's possible that the Russians will regroup, uh, again, try to topple Kyiv. I don't think they'll be able to do it. And we're also seeing the importance of, of new technologies. Uh, drone warfare, surveillance technologies, the importance of, uh, of the accurate targeting that Western weapons can, can carry out. I think when the dust settles, this will be a cautionary war to countries like Russia and perhaps China that have a territorial ambition uh, because the, the, the sort of takeaway here is that... Uh, asymmetries that appear to favor major powers may disappear in the face of military technology and the resistance from countries that are subjected to territorial aggression. And I assume uh, the back of your mind, uh, Taiwan uh, is an example there. What about Zelensky himself? Is he an example uh, Charles, uh, of a new kind of statesman. You mentioned new technology. He's certainly a master of social media. Um, 
is he a, a 21st century kind of actor on the global stage or is he just um, uh, a, 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 a young charismatic figure who, who has appeared throughout history who in the 21st century is just good at using email and social media? Well, I mean, I think he he has outperformed expectations on on all those fronts, Andrew. Uh, in some ways, his preparation as an actor, as a comedian, as someone who knows how to reach an audience has enabled him to fill the presidency of Ukraine in a, in a quite amazing way. And yes, part of his performance is the product of knowing how to use social media, how to use television, how to use his bully pulpit to rally not just his own people, but much uh, of the world, and in particular, NATO, NATO countries. Uh, you mentioned just a minute ago that Zelensky is in Washington. I think he's meeting with Biden as we speak. It's the first time he's left the country since Russia invaded in February. And I do think he's doing this in part to appeal to American hearts and minds, European hearts and minds, he knows that the Republicans are about to take control of the House in January. They're less enthusiastic about continued assistance to Ukraine than the Democrats. And I think he's helping Biden get through big aid allotments before power changes hands. He knows that Europe is headed into cold weather facing soaring energy prices and potential energy shortages. So this, I think, is a moment for him to get out, to reach out to publics on both sides of the Atlantic, and to ensure that those publics, like his own Ukrainian public, is ready for the long haul. Charles, what about... Uh... Joe Biden, uh, I just did a show earlier today with the, the Berkeley economist, uh, Brad DeLong, who, who's, who, who thinks that Biden's done a, a pretty good job on, on the economic front in 2022. How do you rank his foreign policy this year? Has he done a good job? I'm guessing, like DeLong, you're, you're, you're more on the progressive side of politics. So uh, your, your, your grade card might reflect your politics. But how do you rank Biden's performance? You know, I, I'd give him pretty high marks. Uh, I think on the, the domestic front, he came in to office with grand designs. And I think those grand designs were uh, appropriate given the scope of the, the political problem we, we have in this country, which in my mind is at heart uh, a function of economic insecurity of the declining fortunes of the American working class and, and middle class. And Biden went big, huge domestic investments that he eventually had to scale back because he didn't have the margins in Congress needed to pass Build Back Better. So a $3 trillion bill turned into a $1 trillion bill but it's a significant investment in the domestic economy. He's investing in, uh, in climate technology, in chips, in infrastructure. These are important efforts to try to push 
the American economy in the right direction and get working Americans back up on their feet. I gave him pretty high marks for his handling of the Ukraine war. In fact, very high marks. Getting out of the gate early, disclosing intelligence that Russia did indeed intend to attack Ukraine, putting together a very solid coalition with all three lines of effort ready to go as soon as Russian uh, Russia began its invasion. Assistance to Ukraine, reinforcing NATO's eastern flank, including ultimately the admission of NATO to NATO of Finland and Sweden, and very, very far-reaching sanctions against the, the Russian economy. Uh, the war has to some extent distracted Biden from his important domestic agenda, but I think to the surprise of many, the Democrats outperformed in the midterms in November. Uh, I was quite fearful that the high inflation rates in this country were going to do a lot of damage to the Democrats, but that in fact did not seem to happen. And then uh, the opposite, uh, the Democrats did better than usual in a midterm uh, election. And it does appear that finally, Trump seems to be more of a liability than an asset with election deniers and candidates supported by Trump not doing well in those midterms. And that I think is again a sign that even if Biden's uh, popularity ratings are not as high as he would like them to be, he comes across as someone, someone with competence, with integrity, with steadiness, and that, I think, is what Americans uh, want amid uh, a difficult economy, a war in Europe, uh, and a pandemic that does not seem ready to go away. Charles, uh, your last book, as I suggested at the beginning, is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Um, we talked in our last interview about whether or not Trump was an isolationist. Of course, he's not a hardcore isolationist, but he's certainly more of an isolationist than, than Biden. Has any of Trump's isolationism, has it rubbed off on Biden? Do you think that foreign policy under Joe Biden has been affected, impacted at all by Trump? Or is, it, is, is Trump's foreign policy a reaction to, to, to Trump, to his his rejection of expertise to his cult of uh, American self-interest? Well, I think that um, certainly before the Russian attack on Ukraine, one could see some continuity in foreign policy uh, between Trump uh, and Biden, in particular, the desire to downsize the American footprint in the Middle East. Biden took the tough decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, which while it did not go particularly well, was in my mind the right decision. Biden has also continued the economic uh, protectionism that, that Trump uh, began, has not gone out and taken down a lot of the tariffs that were put in place, has not been forward leaning on negotiating free trade agreements in fact, many Europeans are now complaining that uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is protectionist and that it favors American industries, subsidizes 
American electric vehicle manufacturers. Uh, so in that, in that respect, there's continuity. I think we also see dramatic change in that Biden has brought America back to being a team player, uh, a multilateralist, a country that believes in and invests in alliances. Biden is now back in the game as a supporter of human rights, of democratic values. And now we see Biden really focused like a laser uh, on geopolitics because of uh, the large scale war that has broken out in Ukraine. Biden, in my mind, has made the correct decision not to directly enter the war, but we are certainly uh, invested in the war, uh, flowing lots of money, lots of arms to help Ukraine defend itself. Will in 2023 there be a potential backlash against American involvement in the war, against the large aid budgets that are flowing to Ukraine? I think the answer to that is probably yes. And we're already seeing some Republicans say that they are not going to give Biden a blank check when it comes to Ukraine. I'm hearing that some Republican members will not show up at Zelensky's speech before Congress tonight as an expression of their discontent. So the, the kind of it's time to focus on the home front and invest in the American economy, that voice is out there. Uh, it's been some, to some extent silenced by the war in Ukraine. I think you'll hear it more uh, clearly and loudly in 2023, especially with the Republicans in control of the House and the America first wing of the Republican Party strengthened by uh, the addition of some new members. In a funny way, listening to you, Charles, nothing much has changed. It's the same old America divided by, uh, shall we say, progressive internationalists, the Wilsonian element within the Democratic Party versus strong isolationism amongst many Republicans, not all. Is anything different? Well, I, you know, I think the big difference from where we were during the 20th century and into the early part of the 21st century is that the center, the ideological and political center in the United States has collapsed. And American internationalism was really born uh, on the back of the centrism that took place, uh, the centrist movement that took place in the 40s and continued on into the Cold War. It was really Roosevelt who cobbled together the internationalist consensus between centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats. That's now gone. Uh, and as a consequence, it's much harder for presidents to navigate. To some extent, Russia's attack against Ukraine has restored a measure of bipartisanship. Yes, Republicans and Democrats have over the course of 2022 come together to support Ukraine, but that coalition may now fray as the Republicans take back control of the House and they may find support uh, from the left wing of the Democratic Party, which has already expressed its desire to see 
the Biden administration try to lean into diplomacy and bring the war to an end sooner rather than later because of the costs and the disruption that the war is causing to supply chains uh, to uh, and adding to the uh, inflationary pressures here at home. So the, 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 the domestic milieu in which presidents operate is, is today much different than it used to be. One of the things that has changed, of course, is the appearance of China as the other great power, certainly economic power and military power in the world. Uh, we had Orville Schell, one of America's leading China experts on the show yesterday, talking about how he viewed China in 2022 and American-Chinese relations. We had Chris Miller on the show recently as a new book out, Chip War. And of course, Biden's been quite aggressive in terms of his trade policy with respect to China. Do you approve of that, Charles? Is this the right policy? And do you see more of it, more sort of uh, economic or uh, autarkic ec economic policy in 2023 from Biden in particular with respect to China? Well, I, I do think that one of the takeaways from the from the war in Ukraine is that we need to de-risk globalization. Uh, and by being very dependent upon potential adversaries for rare minerals, for semiconductors, for pharmaceuticals, for elements that go into our weapon systems, uh, you know, we, we, we need to distance ourselves. We need to become more self-reliant. We need to uh, what's called friend shore. That is to make sure that the critical things that we need are produced in sufficient quantity and quality by countries that we trust, either here at home or produced by allies. And so you are, you are starting to see the redirection of supply change in certain sectors. And Biden's uh, executive order to ban the sale of, of high-end semiconductors and semiconductor making equipment to China is, is about trying to prevent China from moving as quickly as it might into uh, high-end, higher-end technologies. I do think that we have to be selective in terms of the de-risking of globalization and interdependence. Uh, we, we live in a world where we, uh, I think, are unlikely to see full-scale decoupling from China because we are too much dependent on each other, the U.S. and China, the U.S. and Europe, uh, Germany and China. Uh, and so I think right now we're in the midst of trying to figure out, can we de-risk and decouple where we need to, and at the same time, continue uh, significant trade and investment with the Chinese. The other issue that's uh, at stake here, Andrew, is, you know, we, we seem to be on a slippery slope uh, descending into what looks a lot like a, a new Cold War, with not just Russia, but with China. And the, the Chinese uh, have responded to Biden's invitation to work with us on climate change, on pandemics, uh, on other transnational challenges 
while disagreeing on other things, they, they haven't responded too well uh, to that invitation. And so I think one of the real challenges going forward for the United States and China is finding a way to work together on the, the big transnational challenges, even if there are sharp disagreements over human rights, over the South China Sea, over, over geopolitics. Because it seems to me we really can't afford to go back to a world in which there is scant cooperation across ideological lines. Otherwise, how are we going to tackle global health? How are we going to tackle climate change? Nuclear right. I mean, I was thinking of climate change as being the, the perfect opportunity, perhaps, and well, maybe not quite perfect, but certainly an interesting opportunity that will certainly allow the U.S. and China to work together. The jury is out, right? I mean, it, it, now the conversation with China on climate change coming out of the, the recent uh, climate summit, that conversation is going again. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to see whether the U.S. and China can find the right mix of confrontation and, and engagement, of confrontation and cooperation on climate and other shared concerns. Yeah, Orville Schell, is, is, who's a progressive, is not optimistic on that. Finally, Charles, I'm not going to ask you to predict 2023 because that's a, a dumb question, but let's end with a couple of questions on 2023. What are you most hopeful about in 2023 on the global stage and what concerns you most? Um, I would say that uh, the, the the answer to the question is is in some ways the same answer in that uh, I think that the, the top priorities for the United States and its allies are at home. And we've been living through a dangerous moment for liberal democracy, not just in the United States, in the UK, in Poland, in Italy, but we see worldwide that the progressive march of history has stalled, right? We, going back to the, to the 1776 uh, Declaration of, of American Independence and the French Revolution, we, we've seen little by little more and more democracies emerge, more prosperity, more liberal values. And now the, the, the arc of history is bending in the other direction, more autocracy, even stable liberal democracies like the United States have begun to stumble. And to me, uh, the, the, the priority here is to ensure that the liberal democracies get their houses in order and have their lights on. If we do, I'm pretty confident that we'll figure out how to deal with Russia and China and climate change. If we don't, I think we're in trouble. So I, I end 20, uh, 2022 with a certain amount of optimism from the midterms, from the fact that in Germany, the center has held, in France, the center has held. The transatlantic alliance has come back to life in a big way. So there's momentum in the West that suggests we may in fact take advantage of this moment to get our houses in order. What worries me is that 
we won't rise to the to the occasion, uh, and that we may struggle with illiberalism and populism in a way that that uh, threatens not just our own welfare, but global welfare, because the world at this time needs a liberal democratic anchor. 